time ago. It's a real joy to be able to open God's word with you. So as you can see on your order of service, our focus will be on Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. But I want to read the context of that. So I invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 24. I'm going to read the first 28 verses. I was looking at sermon audio this morning and I, I saw that Peter's average sermon length was 35 to 39 minutes. I'm about 10 minutes longer than that, so I'll try and meet you halfway. So give me a little bit of grace this morning. Joshua chapter 24, verse 1. Hear the infallible word of God. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. And Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away that, the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we, will serve, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after, you have, after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, and put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. 
So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your holy living word and we pray that you will take away all distractions, that you will apply these truths to our lives and that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So our verse in verse 15 is one of those that you will find on mugs, on wall coverings, doormats, Uh, all over the world but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord don't want to scare you but we have eight brief points this morning all beginning with the letter R you'll see a couple of those are a little bit stretched to get that it's not the be all and end all Um, but here's the first just using a single word review verses 2 through 14 in our text we find a lot of looking backwards Earlier in in the passage, we saw the context, we saw the background of this declaration from Joshua. God, through Joshua, reviews the storyline of redemptive history so far. We're still in, in the early days, but he says, from ancient times. And he brings us all the way through, and he starts with Terah and Abraham, and the promises that God gave to those people. That a land is going to come to his descendants. And then to Isaac and Jacob. And all those that follow. And then Moses and the Exodus from Egypt. All recorded in the Torah, the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible. Moses has died in Moab. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And at that time there have been many, including Moses himself who have been forbidden entry into the promised land because of sin, unbelief, unfaithfulness. There's a a constant theme with the people of God back then. And so at the end of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel still have not made it into the promised land. They have not yet taken possession of what God has promised them. It's absolutely certain, but it hasn't happened yet. That we're in that in-between stage. And what we have at the end of the first five books of Moses and then through the book of Joshua is is like a a mini story of redemption, which points to a bigger story of redemption. And we pick up at the beginning of this book and the successor to Moses, Joshua, now leads the people of Israel in over the Jordan River, conquers, settles in the land of Canaan, that land of, of milk and honey. And what we find is the constant theme of the book is that God is faithful. God is faithful over and over again, despite enemies, despite the failings of the people being faithful in return. They often prove to be unfaithful. And there's a covenant in place. Promises have been made where on one side there is a 100% reliable and trustworthy record. And that faithfulness leads to the application, therefore, that the people of God should have faith, should trust. This should impact their behavior in every single area of their life. They should obey in response to God's faithfulness, in response to his provision. He keeps all his promises. And this book records the fulfillment in the generation after Moses, you see, where time after time, the people show that they have a very disappointing record. So, as we know, none of those who eventually see the fulfillment of the promise and and enter the land were part of that generation of people who were in, in Egypt and escaped miraculously through the Red Sea. 
apart from Caleb and Joshua, you remember. As we begin this book, Joshua is now the leader, and for much of the book, he's a military leader. They enter, they conquer, but God is the one they are depending on for victory. You saw that in our reading. I did this, I did that, God kept saying. The people were involved, but it's ultimately God who did these things. And that initial conquering happens in the first 12 chapters. And then there's an allocation of of land. Not all the details are worked out just yet in this account. Some of the allocation takes some time to happen. But some of the promises of God are still therefore in the process of coming true. But he inevitably keeps his part of the agreement. The covenant. And then from chapter 22 onwards... We come to this epilogue, including the verses we we read together. Joshua challenges the people. He demands things from them. Because God is faithful. Because he has proved himself to you over and over again. These are the practical applications he's saying. This is driving towards his final recorded words before his death. Much like we... You you can see Jacob on his own deathbed. This is a a familiar thing. These patriarchs gather people together to talk to them, to say final things to them. But rather than a scene with family as it was with, with Jacob, Joshua gathers the leadership together all around him. Now this bears much weight because of the the life Joshua led. Not perfect, of course not. But more significantly, it bears weight because of Joshua's God and his faithfulness. It's almost time to die. Gathers the people together in chapter 23. And then again in the verses that we read in chapter 24. And on that occasion, he he, uh, summons them to Shechem. (coughs) Right next to Mount Ebal. And interestingly, Shechem has historical and theological significance. We could look back at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. That's where God led Abraham. That's where he had promises that his offspring would inherit the land. Later, it's the place where Jacob built an altar in Genesis 33. And then in Genesis 35, he buried their gods, small g, the idols of his wives and concubines that they'd brought from Haran. Again, another person in the very same place, calling on his family to purify their hearts, as he describes God's faithfulness. We assume these idols are still there somewhere, under the feet of Joshua and all the people those years later. It says they were under an oak. Perhaps the altar was there too, that had been built. And this address at Shechem by Joshua is yet another warning against idolatry. And as Spurgeon says, Joshua knew that the people who surrounded him, while ostensibly serving Jehovah, were many of them secretly worshipping the ancient idols of their Mesopotamian fathers. Those household images which were once hidden in Rachel's tent were never purged from Jacob's family. Some of them also harbored the Egyptian Egyptian emblems, and some had even fallen into the worship of the gods of the people they had displaced, and were setting up the images of Baal in their homes. This is what Charles Spurgeon says, never in their best days had the children of Israel been divorced from idols. But now you see, in our passage in chapter 24, they've, they've pretty much defeated their enemies, but still some remain among them. And they've seen much, but not all of their inheritance. They're settled. They're relatively prosperous now. It's not long, it's not no longer a time of war, you see, but it's a time of peace, and perhaps that brings with it some complacency. We're almost done. Perhaps they're not quite so committed. And I think every generation needs to be reminded of of this. The faithfulness of God should result in everyday application in our lives. We have responsibilities. We have a choice in the same way that the people then did. We must forsake all idolatry, anything that is above God, anything that even rivals him. Moses said something similar 
Back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, listen to what he said to the people. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, another choice, and blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. So again, there's a need to implore the people to recommit to God exclusively. And Joshua, as we read, does the same. He appeals to the evidence that the people should know, should remember from their heritage. Joshua is 110 years old here and has therefore become an old man since entering the promised land. He's gathering the people together. He's imploring them to be faithful to God in his farewell address to the leadership. He's he's been given his own challenge to be strong and courageous and follow God himself back in chapter 1. So he's explaining the faithfulness of God to him, to the people. He's saying, don't forget all that happened. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, remember the covenants. Remember the promises. Remember how God was and is with you through difficult times. Exodus, plagues, the Red Sea, the wilderness, conquering of the land. Joshua 21.45 gives us a summary of the message of the whole book. It says, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. See, this long review forms the foundation of the argument to come. And the basis of the covenant between God and his people being renewed. This is a renewal ceremony. Others are found throughout the Old Testament where they're reminded and we need reminding as humanity. We often need to recommit. And in chapter 24 verse 1 it says they presented themselves before God. Then from verses 2 through 13, Joshua says, effectively, thus says the Lord. And so Joshua begins to speak and brings the word of God to them and expresses it in the first person. God is is speaking. All that God had done for them over the previous years, he was speaking in the voice of God, telling them that, proving his faithfulness. And then in verse 14, Joshua now speaks in his own voice. He says, now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve him. He's saying, are you capable of this exclusive worship? Forsaking everything else, throw it all out. So that was our first word, review. Now we come to our verse, verse 15, and our second word, reckoning. Reckoning. It's a choice. He says... Uh, Looking at some of the other translations, if it is disagreeable or evil or unjust or unreasonable or attended with too many inconveniences in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. He asks a rhetorical question. No question mark anywhere to be found. But it is a question of choosing. And he needs to do this because it seems that false or fake worship is still rife among the people. He's making a strong argument through comparison. You need to deal with this problem. You need to rid it. You need to be dealt with it forever. Spurgeon again said, now Joshua could not endure double-mindedness. And therefore he pushed the people to a decision urging them to serve the Lord with sincerity and to put away all the graven images. He demanded from them a determination for one thing or the other. He shut them up to a present choice between the true God and the idols and gave them no rest in their half-heartedness. You can almost hear Elijah here on Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 18, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal follow him. Now there's application to Christians and non-Christians here. That are sometimes hard to, to pull apart. This was a different time. God did have a special people. The Israelites. 
Great blessing to be in that group. But it's not a given that you were therefore saved just because you were in this demographic, in the people of Israel. There were unbelieving, ungodly people among them too. When people are living inconsistently with a profession of faith, it's sometimes hard to know if they are believers or not. Is there a pulse? We hope so. Jesus describes lots of this in in the parable of the sower and, and other places. Claims of profession of faith. But it's eventually re- revealed that they were never saved in the first place. So what do you do as a preacher? Well, you encourage the true believer to commit, to be faithful. And you simultaneously preach the gospel in case that's what's needed. If, in case they were never a believer in the first place. We cannot see the heart and it's a breathtaking choice. But it feels a little bit like irony here. This is meant to feel like a ridiculous comparison. It's absurd, the choice that is presented. And that's, that's to make it more forceful. He wants them to make a once and for all stand that will last. He's saying that it would be irrational if you choose anything other than the God we know and trust. The God that has been faithful to us. I just told you all about it. Any person thinking straight knows the answer. But the truth is that many in that generation, and sadly in our generation, choose Satan rather than the true God. Choose idolatry rather than the hope available through Jesus Christ. And the question today and back then, why is there any hesitation at all in following Christ? Are you misunderstanding the argument? Whichever you are, believer or unbeliever, put your trust in God for the first time or assess whether your confession has inconsistencies and that need to be addressed. Joshua back then is is saying that this needs to be settled because the argument is infallible. There's an urgency here. It says today. Two choices available, but only one choice that makes any sense whatsoever. How can you not see this, he's saying. Makes me think of those who have yet to profess Christ at all. Perhaps you just don't see what I see in Scripture. There's a choice presented that's no real choice. Christ or Satan. Forgiveness or condemnation. Blessing or curse. Heaven or hell. Is this really something? Where we need to sit down and work through the pros and cons of each side. It isn't, is it? And why have you not come to Christ? Today, urgency. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Some senses it's the simplest thing ever. God has to work supernaturally to bring you to repentance and faith. You need to come to submission. Seeing your need of a saviour in Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sins. Trusting in all that he has done. The gospel can be summed up in a sentence or two. And yet it goes so deep. And you need to understand what is happening. What the requirements are. All that God has done. All that you are in need of being saved from. There's nothing more important than resolving this today. And so we've seen review and we've seen reckoning. And we push on into the verse. It says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so our third word is relative. Relative in the sense of a comparison. A relative comparison. It says, but as. And this is where, as the leader, Joshua sets the example. He goes first. He unambiguously shows us his choice. Are you going back to the gods of your ancestors, the gods of other nations? Or are you going to serve this God you just heard about? Choose who you are loyal to. Are you wholehearted? Are you ready to reject everything else? And Joshua is looking for a public declaration. And so here, he takes a stand. He says, I am. I am. Despite what others do. Irrespective of what others do. He's resolved to do the right thing, no matter the decision of others, no matter the cost. And that's leadership. 
He lays all the cards on the table. Having shown them the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of Almighty God, he says, there is no other choice but to serve him, but to obey him, but to trust him, but to get rid of everything else. Even if this is in the face of those still living among us and around us in the other nations. Even if there are those in our own number who are not living consistently with what they profess to believe. I am going to, he says. Matthew Henry, the commentator says, those that are bound for heaven must be willing to swim against the stream and must not do as the most do, but as the best do. We might not think, we might think we have it bad today, you see, but compared to previous generations, we have it easy. And the stream that we are swimming against is not as strong a current as even some of the nations in the world today. Or as believers in times past, of course, times can quickly change as our so-called tolerant culture continues to move forward. But what we need is a resolve. But as for me, doesn't matter what others do. Doesn't matter the cost because I'm understanding the implications, the eternal implications of this decision, of this resolve. I'm going to follow God. Whatever that might look like, whatever he commands. Matthew Henry again, those that resolve to serve God must not mind being singular in it, nor be drawn by the crowd for, to forsake his service. Our fourth word is relationships. Also in verse 15, but for me, but as for me and my house, we. This is where Joshua shows as that what he decides has far-reaching implications on other people. From his perspective, he's the leader. He's trying to influence the entire nation. But he also has responsibilities at home. In his household, he leads wanting others to follow, to implement that resolve right down to the lowest level, the granular level. He says this applies to all of us that I have responsibility for, and it's a deep and weighty thing. So right at the myself, the I, he starts. It's me. He practiced what he preached. He's the head of a household. And he needs to have no wavering. He needs to be wholehearted. He needs to be undivided. He needs to be sincere and single-minded. And therefore impact the people around him, closest to him, who see him every day. Who maybe see more than other people see. No, he needs to have that personal resolve. And then that impacts people. And then he talks about that household. He will lead with authority and responsibility. Whatever his culture looked like, we need to apply that to our culture and lead our own families, our own wives and children. If, if we are men and heads of a household, if that's the, the typical pattern, we need to set the tone. But everybody in the household has a responsibility and can influence others. We read in Ephesians 5 and, and Psalm 128 how we can impact, husbands can impact wives and onto children and Psalm 128, how our spiritual health impacts others around us. He says, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruits of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed. Who fears the Lord? He's living it out. There's no hypocrisy here. You're walking in his way. And that has direct implications on other members of your family and household. There is, there is blessing for our children, we're told, in multiple different places. You shall teach them diligently in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. It's almost repeated word for word. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, it's important. Parents need to lead their children. Husbands and wives together in partnership. Multiple different places. And then you can see, like in the New Testament, when we're talking of Timothy, the influence that that did have on him. 
when we look back on his life. But Joshua wants to impact his whole household, whoever that might be, all his dependents. We need to be faithful in that, in integrity. I wonder if you have that kind of household where you influence not just the people that live with you, but anybody who comes in. Do you have an open house? Are you hospitable? No, we we need to be open. We need to share the good news with people. We need to influence others that we have responsibility for, whether it's from a simple cup of coffee to those who stay a while, whether it's from our children to our wives to um, anybody else who, who wanders through. It begins with we in verse 15. This is done together. My, my family can testify to my very great weaknesses and failures and inconsistencies, I'm sure. Nobody wants to put themselves up as a, a personal example and a perfect example. But we need to strive for that ideal to lead our families and anybody else who we can have influence on. And that includes prayer and it includes reading God's word. It includes family worship. It includes leading your children when opportunity presents itself. Maybe you don't have family worship. Maybe one of the things you need to implement is just two or three minutes a day reading the Bible at a mealtime together. If it needs to start there, that's fine. Grow in that. These are critical things. One of the Reformed Confessions talks about God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself. It starts with the granular, with the single person, and it impacts up and up and up, all the way to Joshua, talking now to the leadership of a whole nation. In some senses, as the Puritans used to say, our homes are the beginning That we start as houses of prayer or little churches with a small C. And then grow from there to impact greater and greater. Matthew Henry again said Joshua was a ruler, a judge in Israel. Yet he did not make his necessary application to public affairs an excuse for the neglect of family religion. Those who have the charge of many families as magistrates and ministers must take special care of their own. He would not engage them to that work which he would not set his own hand to do. So, we've had four words already. Review, reckoning, relative, relationships, now resolved. You see that word there in the middle of the verse? Will. Will. There's a resolution. There's a determination. His mind, he's made up here. He's openly, he's publicly declared what he will do. And he's saying, I hope you will follow. I hope you will do the same. Having put that foundation in place, that logic in place. But I'm doing it regardless, he says. And it applies to every individual, every believer who needs this resolve. We need that culture to be instilled in our lives and in our households. That there is no negotiation or wavering. Unless providentially hindered, when there is a service, we will be there. When there is a prayer meeting, we will be there. We will look for service opportunities for God. We will serve in our homes. We will serve in the context of our church, depending on the gifts that we have been given. Not because we get a a check mark or brownie points, but because it's the right thing to do. It's the healthy place to be. There needs to be a resolve. You eat physical food at my table, you'll sit down for two minutes and hear spiritual food as well. It's a non-negotiable. Joshua is resolute. I wonder if you are. Is this how you are leading your family? Or does your attendance or obedience or willingness to serve depend on any number of subjective things, excuses even? No, you need to be resolved for the sake of your own soul and that of your household and anybody else you have influence over all the way up to the nation of Joshua. I will use my gifts for his glory. I will wholeheartedly follow and obey. So we've seen review, reckoning, relative, relationships resolved. Now sixthly, role. We will serve. That's the role. Serve. You have gifts. 
You have a role here in this church. You have work to do. Are you doing it? Or is it that typical pattern that we see in most churches where there's a very small number of people who almost do everything? That's not a healthy church. No, you need to look and see if you are using your gifts in the right place. I wonder if you have a heart of service. Of course, there are different stages in life and different gifts that people have. But what can you do? What can you do? You need that attitude that to serve God is a great honor. How can I serve God at home? How can I serve God at church? How can I develop my gifts? How do I give and not just take? Makes me think of Jesus as the servant king. Sacrificial service. As part of every membership interview I've uh, ever done at my own church in Grand Rapids, it's stressed that as a church we're a family. All those illustrations we have in the New Testament of, of different body parts helping each other, all necessary, all needed. But each has to step forward and do their role, do their function. You need to look for the gifts that you have been given by God. Everybody has them. If they are a believer, the talents. But if all you do is come on a Sunday and receive, then you have a fundamental misunderstanding of the Christian life. What have you done this week for others? For your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you prayed? Have you encouraged? Have you served them? Have you helped in some practical ways? Is that your heart? Is that your bent towards service? Towards helping? I encourage you to serve with all your heart. With sincerity. That's the way to true blessing. It's linked to the very next part of the verse. To our seventh word which is ruler. Ruler. It says we will serve the Lord. That's the focus. We'll serve the Lord. The sovereign ruler of all. We're talking about service in the church and serving one another. Well, well, serving the Lord through, though, you see, includes all of these things. All the commands of Scripture. All the illustrations of Scripture. Showing the body and the building and, and all the rest. We're serving the Lord. Once again, when we examine the original language, it's Yahweh, it's Jehovah. The faithful covenant-keeping God of Israel. This is returning to the message that Joshua is trying to get through to them. This is exclusive service. You can't serve two masters. This needs to be the focus of every Israeli household. And every household here. We serve the Lord. That's our focus. Not multiple other gods. Idols. Pleasure. Money. Love. Career. Family. But Yahweh. The one who has been faithful to us. The covenant-keeping God. Don't be tempted to become like the Canaanites. Don't be drawn in two or three directions. They have their gods. And they were living among them. And it was a challenge. They were intermarrying. Unequally yoked. Between the people of God and those who weren't. Not even an option for us. They should have got them out as they were commanded to do. Because this is... A position that to God it's unacceptable. And there are New Testament echoes of this commitment and service to Christ. Perhaps you remember Luke 14 where Jesus explains what it means to be his disciple. Again it's exclusive. And he is above everyone and everything. And finding him is worth more than anything we can imagine. Pictures of treasure and pearls. And later in the New Testament, in James chapter 1, he talks of a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We shouldn't be like that. We should be singularly focused on following our God, on following Christ, on becoming more Christ-like. And then in chapter 4 in James, he tells his readers to purify their hearts because they're double-minded. It's a problem in the New Testament as well, and it's a problem today. Having our minds and hearts being drawn in different directions. This lack of exclusivity in service and dedication to God. It's a continual problem. I wonder if it impacts you. I wonder if it impacts your family. I wonder if it impacts your church and nation. Do you have idols to bury today? 
Then our final word. We've had review, reckoning, relative, relationships, resolved, rule, ruler, and now repercussions. In the providence of God, look at the influence that this did have on the people around Joshua. They agree with him, or they seem to. He's an example to them. It looks like they agree with the reasoning. And it appears that they're ready to commit with conviction. God forbid, they say in verse 16, or far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. But you can read verse 16 in at least two different ways, especially in the light of verses 19 through 21. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And then the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Now that could hint that Joshua wasn't convinced by their reflex reaction answer. Are they merely giving Joshua the answer they think he wants? Maybe we can have that kind of response when we are challenged about our commitment to, of course we're going to serve God alone. Of course we are. Why would you think any different? Maybe you have oversight meetings with uh, Pastor Peter. Yes, my, my prayer life is going well. Of course it is. No problems in my family. I'm regularly reading the scriptures. I'm regularly feeding my soul. And I, you could go on. Like the people then, a defensive reflex reaction. Of course I'm serving God. Everything's fine. Why would you think any different? Well, hold on. What does the evidence in your life and in your household look like for that assertion? It's not something to be played around with. Are you serving God exclusively? Are your family doing the same with with you leading if that's your position? Are there other things coming before that service? He's a jealous God. So you see that they do commit. And in verse 21, Joshua warns them, confirms their choice. This is a ceremony, covenant reconfirmation. This is telling them how seriously they should take this. He's looking for that same resolve throughout the nation. Do you have that resolve? Do you have that seriousness? Do you realize the influence you have or should have on others? He's about to die. And yet Joshua still uses present tense language about himself. And that gives me opportunity to challenge those of you in advancing years this morning. Are you serving God in ways that you are able? Do you have a a biblical view on retirement? Or a selfish view? What service are you bringing? Where is your resolve to serve this God who has done so much for you? No, we need to set the right habits for people who we will leave behind. It's not too late to make that change. It's a resolved mindset, a way of living for anyone under 110 years old like Joshua. He has resolve. He, has, he understands God's faithfulness. He understands how that should be practically applied. But you see, there's a deeper fulfillment here that we mustn't miss before we finish that motivates us to service and commitment today. Many of these promises, such as a future home, For the people of God and all nations being blessed through Abraham's seed. They point forward beyond this immediate fulfillment to a a grander, perfect fulfillment, you see. In the ultimate saviour and the ultimate promised land. Promises are made to us too, today. We have the same God. We have the same decision before us. And God, in all the intervening time since Joshua, has continued to prove himself faithful. There's an intriguing passage, you see, that hints back uh, to Joshua in Hebrews chapter 4, where it tells us that Joshua is speaking of another day after that. And he's pointing to an eschatological end times fulfillment of all of this. It's pointing to entrance for believers, not just into a small piece of land in Israel, but into a promised land. Rest ahead. That's where we are ultimately leading our households. 
Joshua's hope was never ultimately in an earthly land. It's also interesting to see that the the names Joshua and Jesus have the same meaning. The Lord is salvation. The Lord saves. We have imperfect typology here. Arrows pointing forwards to, to Christ. You see, we see this typology, these arrows, these hints. Where in some senses, Joshua is a Messiah with a small M. He's a type. He took people into a promised land. But he points to the perfect, sinless example in Christ as the one who takes us into the promised land which will never come to an end. It will have no remains of the sinful Canaanites in it. It will have no threats from outside nations. It's everlasting. The whole of scripture, the whole of creation points to this saviour in Jesus Christ. This is a simple choice. Joshua lays out before the people and before you today. It's a choice of a lifetime. It's a choice of eternity. It's not a new command. It was and is in the Ten Commandments, the moral law. You shall have no other gods before me. And the conclusions are the same for us today too. We should fear God. You can't do that with mixed allegiances. You should be loyal. Anybody who reasons this out will come to the same conclusion. How can serving God be rivaled by any other option? That is what you need to consider in your life today. Is anything in your life, in your household, rivaling service to God? You need to have a reminder perhaps. You need to recommit to this new covenant with much more light than the people had back then. Many more years of evidence proving God's faithfulness. Oh, my friends, examine what God has done for you. His faithfulness. Examine your current pattern of life. Examine your commitment and your service. You face a choice. Are you going to be like Joshua and his house? Are you standing for God openly, publicly, unashamedly? Are you resolved? To swim against the tide, no matter how strong it gets, no matter what others do, because that's the way to true blessing, eternal blessing. Joshua spends this last period of his life focusing on imploring them, reminding them about being obedient, separating themselves from the previous occupants of the land. He's telling them that your generation, the next one, I'm about to die. You need to stand for truth. Like he and his colleague Caleb. Needs to be passed on from generation to generation. Spurgeon notes that Joshua was not saying to himself. These covenant engagements will surely be fulfilled. And therefore I may sit still and do nothing. No. He knew that even at his age he needed to be diligent. He needed to be passing on. This faithful message. He needed to fear the Lord and serve the Lord. And so pick your group. You retired, single, widowed, children, parents, husbands, wives, couples, anyone. You, whoever you are, need to be diligent. Need to fear the Lord. Serve the Lord. This is a call to faithful obedience because God does not tolerate shared allegiances. Believer, you have much blessing today and even greater, bigger, better and always undeserved inheritance ahead. 1 Peter 1.4 To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You need to forsake all other gods. Your God deserves and demands nothing less than complete loyalty. No more superficiality. No more half inch thick Christianity. It's everything. But as we close, I wonder if this makes sense to those of you who don't know this faithful God. Right now, life is all about you. Swimming with the tide of the world. Doing what you want to do. 
tragically on the broad road to destruction and you don't have the hope of a promised land ahead you're not part of the people of God but you see we can also see a pattern of faithfulness in God that gives you hope too let me put it like this whenever anyone and I mean anyone in the whole history of this planet has come to God seeking forgiveness for sin seeking undeserved mercy and unmerited grace repenting and looking to what Jesus did in his perfect life and atoning sacrificial death on the cross and the resurrection and in faith whenever anyone has ever come like that they have never been turned away by God instead they have been grafted into the vine they have become part of the people of God with this hope of the promised land ahead they have been forgiven their heart has been changed from stone to flesh they are supernaturally transformed and then you should then seek to serve and obey this new master that can be you that can be you today Puritan Thomas Brooks says, Oh, the horrid drudgery that is the way of sin, Satan or the world. Thy worst day in Christ's service is better than thy best days, if I may so speak, in sin or Satan's service. Get rid, get rid of anything that is stopping you. Be resolved in a different way not to let this matter rest until you have assurance of your salvation because of the work of Christ on the cross and because of the empty tomb and because forgiveness is offered to you if you repent and have faith in him. That can be you today. Flee to Christ and there you will find mercy. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your faithfulness that we have heard over and over this morning, that we see repeated over and over in Scripture, and even since in church history. Oh God, we pray that with your help, that you would give us the resolve and give us everything we need in order to follow you with everything we have, to have no rivals, that you will help us rid whatever idols we have in our lives. Lord, we pray that we will follow you. Lord, we pray also that for any here this morning who don't yet know you as Savior, that you will open their hearts to your truth and that there would be rejoicing in heaven among the angels even this day over a sinner saved. Bless your word and its declaration, we pray. 